This morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through verse 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open, reading along there with me. And as usual, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word, and I would ask you to pray with me for that, that you would be praying together with me now for God's blessing. Let's pray. Our Father, I and your people bow our hearts together before your Son and before the throne of grace and before you. We know that even now angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim are around your throne, covering their faces and crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. And our God, we would be transported to that heavenly worship this morning. We would know that we are part of something greater. We ask that you would make us to know that. Make us to know that we are entering in with all the saints who have gone before us, even those saints in Corinth to whom the Apostle Paul first wrote, that we are entering into the worship of Christ. And our God, we pray that you would cause us to know the power of the gospel, the transforming grace of God in our lives as the word is preached. We ask that it would be preached with power and that it would be received with meekness and humility and that you would give us grace to lay it up in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Oh God, this is your word and we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. And so we plead with you this morning that you would give ear to our prayers, that you would attend to our cries. We know that your arm is not short and that it cannot save and that your ear is not heavy, that it does not hear. And so we appeal to you as the living God and as our God through Jesus Christ that you have blessed the preaching of your word and the series that we enter in on. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word to us this morning. Well, among the many valuable things I've learned from the multitude of teachers and mentors that God's given me over the years, I think one of the most valuable that I've learned is how to give and how to receive criticism. It's a touchy subject when you get into criticism. Nobody loves to receive criticism, and not many love to give criticism. I have a professor named Dr. Joel Beakey who gave a lecture on criticism, and he often would talk about it in class. And Dr. Beakey would often say that the key to giving criticism is to give people the criticism sandwich. It's a straightforward approach. You come, you commend what you commend, you have to be honest, you can't lie, you can't flatter, you tell the truth, 
You tell people where they've done well. You commend them where you can. Then you bring the criticism as straightforwardly as you can, as clearly as you can, and then you commend again. And so the theory goes, if you give the criticism sandwich, the people will eat what's in between the commendation. I have not had as much success as some other men have had. Maybe the bread that I use, my delivery, I'm not sure. But criticism sandwich is helpful, and it's exactly what Paul does in this book. Paul actually, in these first nine verses, is going to talk about the sweet things, the sweet things of the gospel, the sweet things about the Corinthians, all of the good things, all of the benefits that they have. He's really going to commend them, and he's going to remind them of who they are in Christ and what they have. And then as you go into the book, you're going to say, wow, there's a lot of criticism. This is a lot of meat stacked high on this sandwich. And Paul is going to go through all these difficulties and all these challenges and all of these sin errors in the church but he's not going to do so without leading with grace and kindness and the antithesis of what you would think they ought to receive from him. Now, I want to say a few things about this book first. This book is a book written to a church that Paul planted. Paul went into Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He fought with Jews there. A guy named Sosthenes was the ruler of the synagogue. He got beat up. He got persecuted. Probably the same Sosthenes that's with Paul when he writes this. Paul planted this church, and then Paul was driven out of the city. And you don't hear anything else about it in the book of Acts. But then we have two letters. There were actually four letters. Two of them got lost. Don't go looking for them. You're probably never going to find them. There's a lot of speculation as to why we don't have them. But we have 1 Corinthians, which is really 2 Corinthians. And we have 2 Corinthians, which is really 3 Corinthians. And we have a whole lot of the New Testament in these two books. Uh, T. David Gordon, a friend of mine, says if the Corinthians weren't so messed up, we wouldn't have a huge chunk of our New Testament. And I think that's helpful because sometimes we think if we could just get back to first century Christianity, if we could just get back to what Christianity was in the apostolic days, and you'll even hear big church leaders talk about that. We're trying to get back to that. Okay, this church was full of drunkenness, greed, corruption, boastful pride, immorality, sexual immorality. They were misguided. They were loveless and they sued each other. So we're there. We're there. We don't have to try to get back to the first century. This book is as relevant to us today as it was. And let me remind you, this was the church of Jesus and a church Paul planted. If I planted it, I might expect that. Paul planted this church and Paul saw all of those things. And so what this book does is it gives us a platform to see how the sin that still manifests itself in our lives and in the church is to be dealt with by the gospel and how God under inspira- how Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit, tells the church what they're to do, how they're to address those issues. How do things get straightened out in the church? I think there's also a danger, and you've heard me say this before, the therapeutic gospel that will come in and thousands of people sit under guys that tell them, you know, you have these problems in your life and you have these problems, you just need to do this and do this and do this. And the gospel is primarily to help you have a great marriage and everything just to fix these little things and to take away your worry. And essentially what, what they do is they just tell people, you need to just change. You need to just stop doing what you're doing. There's a skit. I don't know if any of you have seen it on Mad TV. It's um, Bob Newhart, and he is a counselor. And a woman comes to see him, and she has a fear of being buried in a box. And she sits down and he tells this woman, uh, our session's only going to last five minutes. I've never had one last more than five minutes. And it's only a dollar a minute. And they sit down and they begin to talk about the problem. And she says, well, I have a fear of being buried in a box. And Bob Newhart says, 
I have two words for you, and the woman gets a pen out and a pad, and she's ready to write them down. He said, these are the only two words I'm going to say to you. And he looks at her and he says, stop it. And then the whole skit is about him yelling at her, telling her to stop it. And I think, I think sometimes that's how we actually approach problems in our own lives, in a church. Sometimes we approach it as if the only thing we need to do is point out the problem and say, stop it. But Paul doesn't do that. Notice what Paul does in this introductory section. Paul actually sets out three things in the first nine verses. He's first going to tell us what we are and specifically who the Corinthians were in Christ. They are saints. They are positionally holy in Jesus. He's actually going to tell them what they are in Christ before he tells them anything else. And then secondly, Paul is going to tell them what they have in Christ. You'll see that in verse uh, four through seven, where he's going to tell them that they have knowledge and they've been enriched in all speech and they've been given gifts, that they've been gifted in Christ, that they've been given wisdom and knowledge and revelation in Christ. And then thirdly, Paul is going to tell them what God promises to do for them in Christ, and that is to preserve them to the end. Essentially, we can look at this under three things, that the Corinthians and we are sanctified in Christ gifted in Christ, and we are preserved in Christ, sanctified in Christ, gifted in Christ, preserved in Christ Jesus. And notice Paul no sooner tells them who he is. He defends his apostleship because there's been false prophets and false apostles in the church that have been slandering Paul. And Paul wants them to know that they are under his apostolic authority and everything that he's going to say in this book is binding. It is from God. It is by the Holy Spirit. It has application for their lives. They are to receive it. They are to believe it. It is not the word of men. It is, in truth, the very word of God. And then Paul is going to, in the very first place, tell the Corinthians what they are. And notice there in verse 2, the first thing he says is that they are the church of God. They're not Paul's church. He planted them. But they're not Paul's church. Oftentimes we will use the language, this is my church. I will even speak of you sometimes as my people. I don't think that's altogether improper, but you are Jesus's people. You are God's people. You are the church of God. You belong to him. And so that's the first thing in correcting error is knowing what you are, knowing what you are. It's almost comical that in a letter you would tell somebody you're writing what they are. You know, I'm writing to you. You have such and such color of hair. You're fairly nice, but you can be a little bit ornery. That that would be strange. That's exactly what Paul does, though. He says to them, listen, I'm writing to you, Paul the Apostle, with Sosthenes, and I'm telling you, you are the church of God. Now, I think that's important because when we remember what we are, that we are the church of God, then we ought to start thinking, how should the church live in the world? What should the church of God, how would God have the church be in the world? Because we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to him. He shed his blood to purchase us, Paul will say in Acts chapter 20. And notice that he then tells them in verse 2 that those saints in Corinth, those in Corinth are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, for those of you that want to know what the word sanctified means, it, it either means made holy or are viewed as holy or set apart. Here, I think what Paul is saying is that you are sanctified positionally in Jesus. Now, hang with me on this because we're going to go into a lot of theology but in order to grow and get this book, we have to get this, that there is a sense where by union with Jesus Christ, we are in union with him by faith. We are positionally sanctified in Jesus. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus came, 
Jesus said in the high priestly prayer of John 17, he said, Father, for this reason I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. And so Jesus is the sanctified one. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He never sinned. There was no unrighteousness in him. He obeyed the law of God perfectly. And then he offered himself without spot to God, blameless and perfect. And at the cross in his bloody death, the sins of us that were placed on him were washed away in his blood. And he was even sanctified in the cross so that in union with Christ, you are fully positionally sanctified. God sees you as definitively sanctified. You are holy. You have been brought from darkness to light. And positionally in Jesus, you have all the holiness that you need. When God sees his son, he sees you. He sees you through the lens of his son. Now, why would that be important for Paul to say? Because Paul is going to call the Corinthians to radical practical holiness. He's going to tell them there are all these things in your life, all these moral problems, all these moral errors. And here's the response of a lot of conservative pastors. We've got these problems. You need to be holy. I don't think that's actually an enormous problem on a large scale, but I think within churches that take seriously God's word, that take seriously the call to holiness and godliness and living out the Christian life in holiness, oftentimes there's a neglect of the positional holiness in Jesus, and there's a rush to, you need to be holy. I think there's a danger there, because if we forget what we are, and we try to be godly in ourselves, we are going to end up living in legal, legally driven sanctification. We're not going to grow in grace. We won't have the power to grow in grace. We'll think that somehow we'll fall into the trap of thinking God accepts me, receives me, loves me because of what I do and because of my efforts at godliness rather than what I am in Jesus Christ. And so it's exceedingly important. It's exceedingly important to know who you are in order to live out what God has called you to. And so the first thing that Paul says to them is to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It's interesting to me, too, that Paul doesn't enter in on a strong rebuke, does he? Paul doesn't come in and say, in the words of one minister, to you who are in Corinth who give me stomach ulcers. He doesn't tell them, to you in Corinth who cause me great burden and grief, because Paul wants them to be encouraged and build up in what they are in Christ, because the way forward is to remember what we are in Jesus Christ. The way forward is to remember what we are in union with Jesus. And so Paul tells them, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then there's this little clause that commentators are divided on where they will actually, some actually think because of the divisions in Corinth, there were these divisions, we'll get into that, where some were, they were sermon tasters, they were picking their theologians, and some were saying, I'm of Paul, some were saying, I'm of Apollo, some were saying, I'm of Cephas, and then some thought they were really spiritual, they were like, well, we're, we're of Christ, we follow Christ. And so Paul's going to say that those divisions were so prevalent in the church because of pride, because of the, the knowledge issue that they had in this church, that I think the church was already divided. And when Paul says, when he greets those in Corinth, he's greeting those who would have been the Paul followers who would have received his letter, and then he tells, him, tells them that they're called to be saints together with everyone in every place, and that word place is often used of synagogues, and so it's likely that the church was already divided, and Paul was trying to remedy that by saying, look, you are all saints. You are, we flatten the la- playing field, so to speak. I heard this week a man, we were talking about the issue of sanctification, 
And we were talking about the grace of God in the lives of his people and how it's the grace of the gospel that makes us who we are so that we can be transparent, so that we can say, yes, I have weaknesses, I sometimes have fear. And one man said, well, that seems like it's saying we're all on the same level and nobody's better than anybody else. And I thought, isn't that interesting? How subtle, though. Because, because we really are, in Christ Jesus, all on the same level. We are all saints. We are all holy in Christ Jesus. We are positionally holy. doesn't mean that some aren't making greater advances, but fundamentally the thing to know is that we are God's saints. We are the church of God. We, are, it, we do flatten the playing field. And Paul reminds them that they are no better than anyone else in any other worship location And that gives us a high view of the church. It actually helps us to look at other churches that are faithful to God's word and to say, they are my brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so while denominations, and we'll get into this again, while denominations don't necessarily divide, there is often schism because of denominations and because of people thinking they are the true church and there's no other Christians out there. And what Paul is saying is, listen, the church of God are all those who are sanctified in Christ, all those who are called to be holy, All those in every place who call in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so what he does is he basically sums everything up in Christ. And he says, listen, from the outset, everything in this book is going to be resolved by the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything that he says, everything that we have, everything that we are, I am what I am by the grace of God. From beginning to end, we live by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like in every book that Paul writes to That is Paul's answer in every book. I said this this morning in Sunday school. I've said it before. Martin Luther was asked, why do you preach justification all the time? And people said, you're always preaching justification. And he says, because you always forget. And again, I think in the New Testament, when we're reading the same things, we're saying, why is Paul saying the same things? Because we forget what we are in Jesus Christ. We forget what we have in him. Now notice, secondly, that Paul is going to tell us more about what we have in him, specific to the Corinthians. You'll see this in verses 4 and following, where Paul actually gives thanks to God for the grace of God given to them. Notice that he doesn't thank the Corinthians. He makes very, he, he's very careful not to say, you're, you're so wonderful with all your gifts. And um, I thank you so much for your gifts. And you're so wonderful. No, Paul says, I thank God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Now, again, Corinth was a philosophical center like Athens. It was a place where lots of learning, lots of teaching, lots of eloquence, schools of eloquence and rhetoric were set up in Corinth. And what the Corinthians had done is they had received some men who had come into the church who were better speakers, better looking and more boastful and assertive than the Apostle Paul was. And they had, they had become, as I said, sermon tasters. And what they had done is they had said, well, I like listening to this guy. This is my guy. He's eloquent. Listen to the way he waxes eloquently. This is the guy I like. This is the guy I like. And Paul reminds them, listen, it, it, that's a fundamental idol of knowledge. That's a fundamental idol of self-made, man-centered human wisdom and knowledge. And what Paul says is actually... Forget that because you have been enriched in all speech and in all knowledge. In Christ, believers have this infinite supply of wisdom and knowledge. I think it's so marvelous because when I look at the world and I look at the way that the world looks at us, 
And I see the way the world portrays us, slanders on the Simpsons, every kind of thoughtless, unknowledgeable Christian on television. And then I read 1 Corinthians. Paul says, listen, you have been enriched in all wisdom, in all knowledge in Christ Jesus. And that you, of all the people on the face of the earth, understand reality. And you understand who we are. And you know God. And you know the mysteries that were kept secret and hidden, Paul's going to say. And that you have before you, in the scriptures, in Christ Jesus, you have everything necessary for knowledge and for godliness. And then Paul's going to tell them, it's not just in all knowledge, but the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. And now here I think Paul's speaking about supernatural gifts, special gifts, the gifts we're going to read about in chapters 12 through 14. And Paul is reminding them those gifts were given to you in Christ, not to flaunt them, not to become proud, not to become boastful, but to use them to serve one another. Paul's actually going to talk about how they were abusing the gifts and how they were becoming selfish with gifts and I think that's important because you know what? We do that. We do that too. We may not do it with tongues and prophecy and revelatory knowledge, those apostolic things, but we do them them with the gifts God's given us and we look down at others and we start to say, even within, they should do this and this and this because I do this and this and this. I'm good at this. Why aren't they better at this? Instead of saying, God has given you those gifts to serve the church, to build up the body, See, Paul's goal in this, constantly in this book, is to say there's a role that we play in preserving the unity of the church and building up the church, and that the great enemy of that is pride. The great enemy of that is pride. Every other issue that's going to flow from this book, boastfulness, pride, sexual immorality, drunkenness, misguided affections, lovelessness, lawsuits, all of that, fundamentally it's because you have people that take gifts and they think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. And they don't think soberly, like we read this morning. And so the apostle is reminding them, listen, you have been enriched in everything in Christ. You've been given, you've been enriched in all speech and knowledge. The testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. And you've been given these enormous gifts to use for the well-being of others. And so I think, just as we reflect on that briefly, there is, there's great wisdom in us as we enter in on this book in thinking about what gifts has God given me? What part of the body am I? You may think that you can't do much. Um, there was a little Russian woman. She was in her 80s in the 1980s. And before um, communism was overturned in Russia, um, she would sit in a nursing home in Philadelphia. And the man I mentioned to you before, John Skilton, Um, would go and visit her and this woman couldn't do anything she couldn't read she was blind she she was basically paralyzed but I remember John telling me as a little boy that he believed that communism was overturned in Russia because of this woman's prayers now that's a big thing to say from a very intelligent man because what this woman did every day she prayed she sat in her wheelchair and she prayed And she prayed for her country and she prayed for the gospel to go to Russia. And a few weeks ago, we had a man in our men's group who was going to the Ukraine and the gospel for the first time in a very, very, very long time is going into Russia. And it very well may have been because that woman used her gift. She used the gift God gave her. She used what he enabled her to use for the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. 
I think that's an example to us because we often do think about how can I take my gift and how can I build myself up and put my name out there. And our hearts are so deceitful. We do that subtly. We do it imperceptibly. Sometimes I'll catch thoughts flying by in my head and I'm like, why am I thinking that? And so Paul is telling us, listen, know who you are in Christ. Know that you are positionally holy in him. You will be able to pursue godliness because of that. Know that you've been gifted in him. You've been given all knowledge in him. You have been exceedingly blessed to know the mysteries of Christ and to have gifts for the edification of the body. And then thirdly, in the third place, Paul is going to tell us that God is preserving you. I think this may be the most important thing he says here. Because if I were pastoring the church in Corinth, and you had a guy sleeping with his father's new wife, and you had drunken debauchery, idolatry, you had all kinds of wickedness going on in the city, infanticide galore. The city was given over. Corinthianizing was pretty much um, a vulgar term for the worst people out there. And if I lived in that city, and if I saw even how my church was living, and they were just fundamentally worldly, just fundamentally loving the world, loving darkness, loving wickedness, looking just like everybody that doesn't know Christ, I, I would, might be pretty discouraged that they're ever going to change. And, and there would be a temptation, as I said earlier, to come in and to strong arm and to rebuke and to come down hard. Paul doesn't do any of that. In fact, Paul assures them that they are being preserved in Christ Jesus. Notice this. Notice verse 8. He says, Until the revealing of the Lord Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, blameless in the day of Christ. Paul essentially is saying that your perseverance, your pursuit of godliness, and your attaining that pursuit is undergirded and supported by God's preservation. And if that's not the case, if God is not the one upon whose faithfulness it depends, we have no hope of attaining it. So listen, knowing in our own lives, knowing that we have problems just like the Corinthians had, maybe not as openly external, knowing in our marriages, knowing in our families, knowing even in our own fellowship that that issues are going to surface. Paul tells us, like he tells the Corinthians, we are to remember who we are in Christ, that we are sanctified in him, that we are to remember that we have been redeemed by him, that we are holy in him, and that we are being made holy. I want to say, too, right here, far from giving license to sin, When you remember that, that will actually make you want to pursue what is pleasing to God. There are some men, mistaken, very mistaken, who think, if I tell you your fundamental problem is you don't know who you are in Christ, and you just need to rest in who you are in Christ, that that is going to lead to a life of rebellion and sin. It will not, I promise you. I promise you, if you believe and know who you are in Jesus, you will want to be pleasing to him because you will know that you've been bought with a price that you have everything in him and that you're accepted because of him. And then Paul says, remember everything that's been given to you, the gifts you have, the knowledge you have, the teachers God will give you, the way he'll build you up. We have Bibles galore in this country. And how many people in churches don't read it, don't know them, don't know where books of the Bible are, don't know the substance of the scriptures, don't know all the riches of the Bible. I remember years ago talking to a young man who was 17 at the time, And he is just about to finish seminary. He had come from a Christian home. 
And we got talking, and I remember getting the sense that he thought the Bible was boring religious book. And I remember taking him to Luke's Gospel, the Transfiguration, and there in the Transfiguration, uh, the Lord Jesus is there, and his face is shining like the sun, and his clothes are white and glistening. And Moses and Elijah, who had been in glory for a couple thousand years, show up. And, I, and Peter, James, and John, you know, they're sleeping. They think it's boring. And then they wake up, and they see Jesus, and they see Moses and Elijah, and everybody's in glory. And Matthew and Mark tell us that they talked with Jesus. And Luke tells us what they talked about. And I said to this young man, I said, um, now, if, if Moses and Elijah came back from heaven and they were hanging out with Jesus on the mountain, what do you think they'd be talking about? And he said, I don't know. So we went to Matthew where it says they talked. We went to Mark where it says they talked to them. And then Luke says they talked about his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And I said, when Moses and Elijah come back from heaven, come back from the glory of being with God and with all the saints in heaven, and they meet up with Jesus on the mountain, they talk about his saving work at Calvary. And my friend was like, wow, that's really cool. And I saw a transformation in my friend, and I saw a zeal for the scriptures, and I saw somebody who seemed sort of turned off to the Bible see how many glorious things are contained in it, and God has given that to you. You have all knowledge. You have all wisdom. God has given you so much more. You know, when I talk to unbelievers, I will say this. When I talk to unbelievers, and they tell me the Bible's full of contradictions, and they tell me, you know, well, I don't think this part of the Bible was written by God, and they tell me um, the Catholic Church put the canon together, and you only believe it because the Catholic Church had a council, and they said these books should be in the Bible. I look at them now, and I say, you've never read the Bible, have you? I mean, even intellectuals who try to debunk the Bible have not really read the Bible. Very few. Very few. Because the Bible is full of divine riches and knowledge in Jesus, and it's been given to you. You, in Richmond Hill, Georgia. Think of this. Us, in a little southern peninsula in southeast Georgia, have been given the mysteries of the universe in Jesus. And then Paul says, finally that God is committed to bringing you to glory. God is committed to causing you to persevere to the end. And that means there's hope. There's hope for new covenant. There's hope for any church where God's word is, where God's spirit is, where the gospel is. And it doesn't matter what errors are in the church. It doesn't matter. There's hope. Now, I want to say this, because in all likelihood, there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus. That's a pretty good odds. I mean, there were 12 disciples. One of them betrayed him. Probably a good chance there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus. All of these things are what you need, and they're only in him, and they're only through his bloody death at the cross. And they're there for you, and all you have to do is turn to him in faith and repentance. They're all there in Christ, and God holds all that out. And maybe this doesn't make sense to somebody here. Maybe somebody here is like, I don't get all this. This is stupid. Why am I here? God will give you all the riches of his son for now and eternity if you will turn to him in faith and repentance. It's free grace. Notice what Paul says there in verse 3. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you. It's a messed up church full of messed up people who need to be straightened out and it's only going to happen by the grace and the mercy and the peace of the living God. And it's there for us, beloved. We are right there with the Corinthians. We need everything in this book. We're going to get into this over the weeks ahead and Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we 
so desperately need to be reminded of what we are in your Son. We thank you for reminding us that we are sanctified in Christ. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have enriched us in all knowledge and all utterance, that you have given us gifts in Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you are preserving us for the day of our Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that the truths that we've heard this morning and that are contained in this book would be would be relevant and would be powerfully effective in our souls and the life of this congregation. Father, we ask you that you would bless the reading and preaching and hearing of your word, even this morning, and that we would go from this place rejoicing about who we are in Christ and that we belong to the church of God and that we have been given so many privileges and blessings in Jesus Christ. Father, transform us by these things. Give us grace to pursue holiness in our lives because of these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.